Thank you, Danny, for that kind introduction, and good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Um, in this uh, study from the book of Ruth, we're going to be concentrating on just four verses uh, from the fourth chapter of the book. Uh, but for a little bit of context, uh, I want to read some verses from the first chapter. So we'll read firstly from chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. So the two of them, that, that's um, Naomi and Ruth. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And I will turn to our allotted passage, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's often been pointed out that this ancient little book is symmetrical. Chapters 2 and 3 form a literary parallel structure, and those inner chapters are bracketed by two chapters that describe uh, the two contrasting movements in the life of Naomi. In chapter 1, Naomi moves from being full to empty. And in chapter 4, she moves from being empty to being full. And I'm sure you noticed that statement she made in our first reading. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. But in chapter 4, we see Naomi's emptiness being literally, literally filled by the newborn grandchild sitting in her lap. The contrast between being empty and being full gives us a profound insight into our lives. Last week, Tony introduced us to the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz redeems Ruth. And the language used to describe Ruth's salvation is all about security and protection. She can rest under the protection granted to her by Boaz. She's no longer vulnerable nor alone in a hostile world. In the language of the text, Ruth can shelter under the wings of the Almighty. Now, that is a beautiful way to describe the gospel, particularly to a generation that is haunted by anxiety and fear. By coming back to God, you can leave that sense of alienation, uh, the anxiety of living in a hostile universe controlled by forces too dumb even to know you exist. You can know the psychological security of having a father in heaven. But salvation for the older woman, the woman Naomi, is not described in those terms. Naomi's problem wasn't primarily about security and protection. It was about emptiness. 
Life had become a barren and empty thing for her. It was devoid of love and joy and hope. Empty of meaning. That's why she asked the townspeople to call her Mara. Because Mara was the name of a place in the wilderness of Sinai where the children of Israel had experienced a truly bitter time. Mara was a, a desolate desert. No fresh water, no fruitfulness. Empty of the resources needed to live a fruitful and productive life. I once met a businessman when I was on a trip to the west coast of America, and we shared a meal together. I can't even remember the man's name. It was one of those random encounters between two travelers who know they will probably never meet each other again. And while we were eating, he entertained me with a series of quite funny stories. Um, but as we lingered over coffee, the mask of geniality slipped, and I found myself looking into the eyes of a man with an empty soul. He had achieved considerable success in business life, but that success had come at a cost, cost to his marriage and family life. He had missed a great deal uh, of the early life of his three children. His marriage had descended into a cold and joyless thing, so he had embarked on an adulterous affair with a work colleague. The affair ended badly, and so had his marriage. He was now, at that stage, a 45-year-old man, divorced. His children refused to have any contact with him. And the one thing in his life that he felt good about, his business career, was running into trouble. The man's life was now empty. Sometimes our lives can feel empty through no fault of our own. A hard-working Christian couple have to watch as their children cast aside their Christian teachings and make disastrous life choices. Maybe they have to watch a grown son or daughter destroy themselves through drug addiction. Or they hide the pain they feel in their heart as they attend a same-sex wedding. On the inside, there can be a feeling of terrible emptiness. Or take a single Christian woman in middle age. She turns the key in her front door and walks into a dark and empty house. The floor isn't littered with kids' toys. There's no loud, cheerful commotion coming from the kitchen. She quietly makes her evening meal and eats it while watching an episode of Friends. Now, those three little case studies are all very different, and they show us that there is no single diagnosis, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to the problem of emptiness. So what we're going to do is stick closely to the, the story of Naomi in this study and analyze how she became empty. Then we'll think about the two methods that God employs to turn her life from being empty to being full. So that's the plan. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech had chosen to walk away from their spiritual inheritance and to head into the pagan land of Moab. Perhaps they just abandoned the plot of family land around Bethlehem, leaving it to degenerate into scrubland. More likely, they had sort of pawned the farm because an outright sale wasn't allowed. But whoever held it in trust had done nothing with it. It would seem that when Naomi and Ruth returned, the land was too wild to be farmed, the buildings too run down to be habitable perhaps, so they had taken lodgings in the town. Now we shouldn't underestimate the seriousness of Naomi and her husband's choice to abandon their inheritance. The name Elimelech means my God is king. But Elimelech gave up his own name. He demonstrated a lack of faith in the providence of God. He just didn't think that the principles on which Israel was supposed to operate worked anymore. So he got out. 
Bethlehem means literally house of bread, but there was a famine. So there was another empty, useless phrase, like his own name. Elimelech didn't just give up on the future. He had also made the willful choice to ignore his history. He decided that life was lived in the present, a fairly routine humdrum affair. Life was lived according to the rhythms of the seasons, and he chose to forget all the great historical facts of the Exodus or the Jordan parting uh, before his father's feet. So God wasn't king. Chaos or chance was king. There was no plan, no grand story, just the present. And Naomi had gone along with those pagan ideas, but the money from the pawnbroker pawnbroker got used up. Then her husband and both her sons died, and so she's forced to return to her homeland. In my mind's eye, I sometimes see her walk around that piece of unmanaged, fruitless land that had been her inheritance, now full of weeds, very little of anything growing. This was chaotic, no semblance of order. Maybe a cracked millstone or a rotted ox yoke lay in what had been the yard. Now, given all that history, we might reasonably expect Naomi to take some responsibility for the situation. But as we read from chapter 1, Naomi adopted a different explanation. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, I don't want to be overly critical of a woman in such dire straits, but Naomi is quite clearly blaming God for all her problems. It is the Almighty who has dealt bitterly toward her. It is He who brought down calamity on her head. It's a useful thing, you know, to think of your own spiritual inheritance a bit like a farm. The physical land of Israel's early history becomes a metaphor for a spiritual reality, even in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 16. Lord, you are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Maybe you became a Christian in your childhood. You went on summer outreach teams as a student. And God gave you this incredible inheritance, your life with all its resources, its talents, its potentialities. And He gave you that inheritance so that you could live a spiritually fruitful and productive life. Perhaps in your 20s you abandoned your spiritual inheritance. These days it's little more than scrubland, a rusted plow lying in the background. And often Christians in that state can't believe that Uh, they do believe, rather, that they have been punished by God. They haven't given up their faith or anything like that, but they think they've blown their lives. And so they now must live out the rest of their days under the heavy hand of God's judgment. So Naomi's emptiness arose because she had disregarded her inheritance. But the much more interesting question is, how did God save this jaded, cynical woman in that state? And I'm going to suggest that he did two things. Over time, Naomi learned that she was loved. And secondly, she regained the conviction that her life had significance. So the first thing God does for Naomi is to convince her that she is loved. 
There are so many commentators who think that this little book should be called the Book of Naomi. But Ruth is credited with the title because she is the agent of God's providence who brings about Naomi's transformation. God brings Ruth into Naomi's life. I'm not convinced way back in chapter 1 that Naomi had any great love for Ruth. But Ruth's steadfast love for her mother-in-law was unconditional. It is impossible to read that great declaration of loyalty in chapter 1 without being moved by it. And Ruth showed her love by more than words. She worked prodigiously hard, toiling in the blazing heat of a Middle Eastern sun to gather grain from the edges of the fields. Ruth never lost heart, although I'm sure there were tears and prayers made to God when there was no food on the table. The sheer nobility of her character became known throughout the region. She was known as a good and virtuous woman, exactly the same title that is given to the ideal woman described to us in Proverbs chapter 31. So we are seeing here the transformative power of love. The older woman, jaded and cynical, listened as she stood by her daughter-in-law every Sabbath, heard her sing praise to the God of Israel, the God that she now loved. Sometimes the radiant love of a recent convert, the love they have for God can stab us to the heart. Naomi watched a girl from a Moabite background rejoice in Israel's God. She was content to live in poverty, able to laugh at the silliest of things, bursting with energy, revealing a faith that was vibrant and real. There was no hint of condemnation in Ruth's attitude to the older woman, never a disappointed look, just sheer, unalloyed love. The Apostle Paul once said, Love never fails. Love succeeds where scolding is useless. Love wins when disappointed tutting fails. And quietly over the years, Naomi learned to love her daughter-in-law. She couldn't help herself because Ruth was so lovable. But gradually the corridors of her jaded heart began to glow once again with the light of deep affection and love for someone else. Now that truth can be applied at two levels. At the most practical level, if you feel your life is empty, find someone to love. I don't mean necessarily romantic love. In fact, usually it's not. Ask God to bring people into your life who over time will fill your jaded heart with genuine affection and love. I have become convinced, you know, that most people who think that their lives are empty, empty of meaning, are really people whose lives are empty of love. To love and to be loved, that brings us closest to the meaning of life. But at a deeper, even more intimate level, Ruth's transformation of Naomi is a picture of how Christ deals with us. Maybe our spiritual inheritance is like that piece of abandoned scrubland. But the Lord Jesus doesn't stand looking at it, shaking his head in disapproval. No. Like Ruth, he gets stuck in. He chooses to dwell within our personalities, whatever state they're in, and he pours his love into our hearts. It's just this constant, unfailing stream of transformative love, and over the years that evokes within us the ability to love him back. And so the single middle-aged Christian woman can eat her evening meal alone in her house and still know that she is loved. She has a companion who always sees her, who shares her daily life, 
who is an unfailing source of bubbling positivity. So God's first answer to the problem of emptiness is to convince us that we are loved and in so doing give us the ability to love. God's second strategy is revealed in the final scene of the book. But once again, it reminds us of the transformative power of love. The story, as we read, ends with Naomi's heart full to the brim with joy and hope for the future. She looks down at her little grandson, the child who bears the family name, and her heart must now be bursting with gratitude to God. So let's just stand quietly there in the background for a moment and enjoy this lovely picture of God's grace. And amazingly, standing in the background with us, unobtrusively, is Ruth. It is such an unexpected way to position the characters. If we'd been writing the script of a film, the story of Ruth would have ended with Ruth sitting center stage, with the baby on her lap. But Ruth considered the interests of others before her own interests. This young woman who loved Naomi with true steadfast love, and now, even in her own joy, she chooses to lay her firstborn in Naomi's lap so that Naomi could be surprised by joy. Now, that takes someone with real greatness of soul to think like that, doesn't it? To find joy in giving joy to others. It should remind us that on every occasion when we experience joy in our lives, the divine joy giver is standing quietly in the background, happy to have made us happy. When the women of the village say that Naomi has been given a son, they're actually saying something rather profound. We're going to think more about it next week. This story provides an essential link in the chain that leads to the coming of the Messiah. As Naomi looked down at the infant in her lap, she became convinced that her life had real significance. After all, she was part of a great story whose author is everlasting. A meaningful life consists in being part of something bigger than you. That is the countercultural claim of the gospel in a world that worships expressive individualism. A meaningful life consists of being part of something bigger than you. But all of us are at risk of forgetting that truth. We can allow our Christian inheritance to become infested with weeds reduced to scrubland. The grand story of Christianity can fade into the background, leaving us with only the emptiness of a materialistic life. But once again, we see the transformative power of Ruth's life in Naomi's life. This time, it's not her steadfast, unconditional love. This time, it's her modeling, her example of faith in Israel's God. There once were two girls who had been raised in an idolatrous culture. One was called Orpah, and the other was called Ruth. One girl made the wrong choice, and her story has been lost forever. But Ruth the Moabites chose to be part of something bigger than herself. Even though her life had been desperately hard, she had found in the God of Israel the source of all that is real and good and noble. And she trusted him through the darkest of times. She prayed and wept when there was no food on the table. She saw past the social chaos of lawless Bethlehem and looked at the grand picture of God's plan to redeem the universe. And all the while, Naomi was watching and learning. In the course of her life, Ruth met a man who thought as she did, 
She could have chosen a better-looking, younger partner, but Deep called on to Deep. A virtuous woman, in a moment of intense vulnerability, proposed marriage to a noble man. They built a home together. They raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Naomi watched and learned about the life of faith. Learned to live once again within the context of God's grand story. And a very tangible and practical change flowed from those lessons. Naomi watched as Ruth and Boaz returned to the scrubland of her inheritance and turned it once more into a productive farm. Boaz had bought that at real cost to himself. In my mind's eye, I sometimes see him walk around that piece of unmanaged, fruitless land, full of weeds and very little of anything growing, chaotic. But Boaz was a bit like a gardener, I guess. He would use all his resources and energy to bring order and fruitfulness to that plot of land, to make it productive once again. I wonder if you're being honest. What state is your land in? If your life was visible to everyone, would it be a disordered and fruitless place? Well, your kinsman redeemer has bought you with a price. But he won't leave your inheritance in that terrible state in which he bought it. He will work on it, change it, make it more effective and productive. He will pour all his spiritual energy and resources into that project. And here's the amazing thing. It will still be yours. Your name, your essential personhood, your essential substance, the real you will last for all eternity. As Galatians 2.20 puts it, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This ancient little book has a moving and profound answer to the question of emptiness, particularly to those whose lives have become empty because they have abandoned their spiritual inheritance. You need not slump into despair because you think you've blown it, and you must now live in perpetuity under God's judgment. Christ does not walk around the desolate landscape of your mental and spiritual life and tut in disappointment. Like Ruth, he will pour steadfast loyalty, unconditional love into your life. He will be your companion, and he will help you to relearn the truth that your life has eternal significance. The solution to an empty way of life is to know that you are loved and to know that your life has eternal significance. But how do you know that you're loved? That's a reasonable question to ask. Well, listen to the Apostle Peter from his first epistle. You were ransomed from the empty way of life inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is the cross of Christ that shows us what God thinks of us. Come to the cross and learn that God regards you as incalculably precious. You are loved. And what about significance? In the last verse of the book of Daniel, we read these words. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel never returned to Israel. He never returned to a little plot of physical land. But his true allotted inheritance awaited him in heaven. 
the end of days he will receive it, and so with you. Listen to Peter once again, talking of Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing, kept in heaven for you. I want to close by turning Naomi's story around. Rather than applying it to believers whose lives have become empty, I want to finish by encouraging you to live like Ruth. Who is the Naomi in your life? Is there one? Who perhaps have you stayed close to, been loyal to, prayed for? How wonderful it would be if you could stand in the background of your Naomi's life and watch them be surprised by joy. See them have the joy of their salvation restored once again. And you will do that by loving deeply, by investing your life in the eternal kingdom, modeling faith, showing by your choices and actions that you're fired by spiritual ambition and loyalty to God. And only eternity will reveal the significance of that work. Ruth must have watched Naomi die. She probably watched Boaz as well die. And at the end of her own life, as she thought of all the joys and all the sorrows, she must have known that her life had mattered. Her choices and actions weren't just bubbles in the froth of a meaningless random universe. Her life had been woven into God's grand story of redemption. And that was no abstract construct. She could look back on real people in her life. Real people that God had used her to transform. By loving the people in her life, by modeling the life of faith, Ruth has actually transformed the lives of countless millions of Christians down through the centuries. <coughs> and so I think she knew in her heart as she exhaled her last breath that her life was no empty thing. It was a life full of love and a life of eternal significance. That is why this little book is called Ruth and not the book of Naomi. It's such a, a beautiful thought, isn't it, that one of the 66 books of Holy Scripture is named after this Moabite girl. She is venerated because she helped others to discover and rediscover the love, joy, and hope of the gospel itself. So I close with a challenge for all of us. Are you like Ruth in your family, in your workplace? Can you take jaded, disillusioned family members and friends who have lost their way spiritually and lead them back to fullness of joy? If you can do that, you'll be walking in the footsteps of your kinsman, Redeemer. Let's pray, and then I'll hand back to Danny for a final hymn. Our Father, in the quietness of these moments, we pray particularly for those here tonight who feel an aching emptiness in their hearts. For whatever reason, joy and hope and love has drained out of it. And we ask, Lord, that in the quietness of these moments that they would know once again that they have been redeemed from an empty way of life by the precious blood of Christ, that they would come to the cross and know once again by being convinced by the objective facts of history that Christ died for us. 
and by so doing demonstrated beyond all doubt that to God we are incalculably precious. And so we pray that this night those who feel empty, that they would know above all that they are loved by God, that the existential security which comes from that knowledge would be like a foundation in their hearts. And we pray, Lord, that over time, as they see others model the life of faith, that they would become convinced that their own lives have eternal significance. So we thank you for this wonderful example of Ruth, the example of living a life of love and modeling faith to convince others of the reality of the eternal kingdom. We ask now, Lord, that you continue with us in Jesus' name. Amen.